millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Glenn Moore of World Soccer, and Richard Amofa of The Athletic. It's a fair bet that Gareth Southgate's ears have been burning during this international break. Club managers are understandably livid at losing players to untimely injury. Southgate has tried to turn the problem on its head. He's gone on record as saying he fears England will lose key players to what he terms serious injuries before next summer's Euros. Whatever your view on the viability of international football, and to be honest, I'm not its greatest fan at the moment, surely football is failing in its duty of care to the players. So Glenn, are they being treated as expendable? Well, you could argue that footballers have always been treated as expendable, right back to the serfs and owners' relationship from the sort of late 19th, early 20th century. Players obviously are now much, much wealthier and have far more rights, and uh, to a large extent, particularly at elite level, can do what they can choose their career path. But in terms of the sort of amount of matches they're playing, they are still basically regarded as uh, as workhorses, as um, in sort of the, the labour pool. But the problem is, it's not that easy to find a solution. We saw in the summer how hard it was to persuade players to take a pay cut. You tell the players, we're scraps and matches, but you take a pay cut and see how the PFA and the agents react. You could argue the internationals is an obvious area to cut, but football associations need cash as well as clubs, and often for better reasons. Yeah, I suppose you know, there is. it's understandable, isn't it, Richard, that the attention is focused on the international game because ultimately a national team manager... I know he talks about his players, but they're not his players, are they? No, and, and that's that's it, ultimately. I mean, as you say, we, we already know that the schedule is jam-packed this season and it's already been revealed that the number of soft tissue injuries has, has already increased. I think it's already by just over 40% as compared to this stage last season. So we, we know and we can see the impact it's already having on players. So throw into the mix international fixtures as well. It's only going to be more problematic. Yeah, I suppose international managers are reliant on the lure of the Euros, aren't they? I suppose, you know, try telling Andy Robertson to rest at the moment, Glenn. Well, absolutely. I mean, you saw, I mean, there's always talk when International Week comes around, oh, God, it's international football, who cares? Well, then you go and look at North Macedonia or Scotland and, you know, people do care. And uh, and come next summer, when hopefully the Euros will be on, we would all care about England. And the fact is, if England don't play games like friendlies and even the Nations League games, which, which I don't regard as friendlies, actually, if they don't get those opportunities to play, then we won't be very good. They, they do need matches and we'd all care when the big games come around. But when you look at it, though, let's look at Germany, for instance. They had their lowest ever ratings for a friendly against the Czech Republic. Is there the appetite for international football or the amount of international football we've got at the moment. We're having basically three games a week thrown down our throats. I mean, I I, I do think so. I think Glenn, Glenn made a great point in the sense that, you know, teams do need that match practice together ahead of next season's tournament. I guess if there wasn't this these kind of matches, then when it gets to next summer, people will turn around and say, oh, you know, if the team isn't playing well, oh, you know, they could have done it for a few friendly matches. So there is that argument too. You, you mentioned Germany. Yes, of course, they... Uh, the, the, the numbers for the Czech Republic game weren't great, but I'm just looking at the figures for their game against Ukraine. 8.16 million viewers had over six, uh, 25% of the of the market share there. So 
there does seem to be an appetite for the competitive games. I guess, like all of us, you're thinking it's just a friendly, I might not tune in, I might not see the calibre of players that I'm used to seeing. So it's, a, it's an understandable drop-off. But I do feel overall, you know, when international football does come around, yes, there are arms and ours, but, you know, we, we do ultimately still tune in because we, we want to see a, a, a good game. Yeah. Um, you know, club games, to be fair, are going to be relentless after this break as well, aren't they? We, I think it's uh, we, we won't be resuming international football until March. What are the lessons of the untimely injury that you do get on international duty, though? Is it just inevitable? But you look also, let's consider the impact on Liverpool. OK, we're just coming to terms with Joe Gomez. Are there worries now about Jordan Henderson? If you look at City, you've got Nathan Aki, even Raheem Sterling had a problem. Eventually, the manager's going to say, look, enough is enough, aren't they? Well, to be fair, though, those injuries could happen anywhere. I mean, there's no evidence to suggest that, particularly in national teams like England, where they have very good medical backup and they, they do take into, you know, care of the players. And international managers tend to be very wary, particularly in training, of, of risking players who have got any kind of injury because they know the problems it causes with the clubs. I mean, most of those injuries could happen anywhere. They could happen at club level. I mean, those players would have been training at the club if they're not been training with England or whichever national team they're at. So that injury could easily have happened there as well. It's just, just an unfortunate coincidence that if it does happen international duty. There are obviously issues with players travelling long distances for the ones who are going back to South America or you know, Africa and so on in terms of the sort of extra toll that takes on you. But if you sign a player who's a South American international, you, you have to expect he will go back to South America to play internationals. Mm. If you look at Liverpool, Rich, you've got Andy Robertson's at the moment, the only fit member of that, uh, the first choice back four. When you look at the the group that they've got, is it strong enough to sustain itself over the long haul this season? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess a lot has been said about obviously their injury issues and they have been unlucky with a number of their players coming down with COVID as well. But I guess if you look at the table, you can still say, look, you know, they are, I think, just a point off the top. They are still competing at a high level despite all their injuries and, 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 and lack of rhythm and, and cohesion there. We know there's issues at the back. But, you know, so it's, it's been so far so good for them, really, in terms of results on the pitch. So, I mean, they can turn around and say that they've dealt with it relatively well and, and talks of a kind of crisis or injury concerns are maybe overblown. We know that, obviously, they've got issues at the back. Joel Matip is probably the most recognised centre-back centre back now. And even, you know, he's had his own injury concerns. He's only played 90 minutes twice this season. But, you know, when Fabinho comes back, you know, he can slot in there. And when Matt Phillips and Reese Williams have come in, both two youngsters, well, I guess Matt Phillips is slightly older, but um, they've both done quite well. So I think, you know, credit to Klopp, you know, he's obviously installed a good system there. And players coming in and out have seemed to kind of merge in quite seamlessly and receive the table showing that. So I think they'll be quite happy, despite all their injuries, that they're still kind of fighting quite quite well. You have to wonder with Liverpool, and not just Liverpool, one or two other teams as well, whether the relentless style of their game does lead to more injuries uh, because it is a very high-octane, demanding game they play. And although there's a certain amount of rotation in midfield last year, he doesn't rotate his other players very much. So, I mean, players are doing an awful lot of work and eventually they, do, they will break down. Doesn't that sort of point up the advantage of, of being able to bring in someone like Diogo Yota, who can augment the front three or even you know make it a front four effectively? Again, with Salah testing positive for covid when in Egypt at his brother's wedding, that's got to be the thing that would drive a manager mad, isn't it? I know you know you can't you can't plan for these things, but it's 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 again something that I wouldn't say is a well. I suppose it is avoidable, isn't it? If you just just don't don't go, don't travel. Yeah, it is, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's extended makes some circumstances. Brother's wedding, I guess you know mm. it would be difficult to miss that, but. It, 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 he does. You do have a point there. I mean, in these in these times, it is difficult to uh, to know who's kind of really taking taking risks, who's really following the protocols and following the rules as best as possible. And although Salah may have been doing that back in Liverpool, you don't know who who's at the wedding. We don't know if they're if they're following the, the right protocols and rules as well. I guess you can say it, we're turning it on its head that you know Liverpool have been probably hit most more than other clubs with regards to. COVID infections among the squad. So someone could just say, well, we're just as likely to get it back in Liverpool as well. So it's a difficult one, really. It's just uh, just managing the situation as best as you can. 
Sure. That might not work out too bad for Liverpool either. I mean, he, he may miss one game for Liverpool, but he's missed two games for Egypt and he's basically he's had a break over international break. Mm. True enough. Very true. What about you know, the other complications of international breaks are basically to be found in the interview room or on the interview Zoom as we're doing it these days. Let's look at France, can we, Glenn? You've got Didier Deschamps saying that Paul Pogba, quotes, cannot be happy, close quotes, at Man United. That might be true, but even so, it's not his place to say so, is it? No, absolutely not. And I think this is an area where the clubs do have a, have a genuine beef. I mean, you know, you and I, we're all veterans of these international get-togethers and quite often when you've got a player who's got an interesting club situation, when you get the chance, you would try and drill down, you know, get a story outside. But, you know, particularly if it's a quiet international week, you know, it's a rare chance in some cases to get hold of a player to try. I remember Sol Campbell giving an incendiary interview which led to Christian Gross being fired. And we will try and get that sort of stuff. And I think that's understandable. And FAs, I mean, the English FA particularly, have always had... Um, been quite sensitive that you know often someone will step in and stop that line of questioning if you're going that way it depends a bit on who the player is and depends a bit on what the club is but we've got the actual manager saying this i think that really is a bit out of order yeah that if i was Solskjaer, you could understand why i'd be very unhappy about that yeah because it's it's an it's another sort of gradual dilution of trust isn't it richard because pogba doubled down on it in his own interview and so you know people say, well, why are you making a consistent issue of, of Paul Pogba and his personality more than anything else? But surely that's just inevitable, isn't it, when all this is going on? I was just about to say, yeah, he, he did He did almost back up his manager's words, didn't he? By, I think he called it magical by being amongst the French squad. And I mean, to, to some extent, I, I do understand. I guess, you know, they, they are the world champions. There is immense quality in the squad. You know, you're among, you're among you're kind, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of like-minded people and stuff like that. But he must know that it would and can cause problems. And as you say, there's so much noise around him. You would just think, OK, maybe just to snuckle down. You know, there's already questions about your form. And I know maybe they're just trying to put an arm around him and say, look, you know, you are a great player and almost beef him up, as it were. But as you say, it, it can prove to be quite problematic. And you you just hope that he would have just almost knuckled down, got through the international break because he played fantastically against Portugal over the weekend alongside Kante midfield. And you just hope he can bring that form back to Manchester. United, but as you say, as you mentioned about previous quotes and stuff like that, in uh, over an international break, it can be quite problematic. Yeah, do you think? You know, I, I suppose it's significant that Manchester United can ease back a bit after the break because they've got West Brom. Do you see the internal dynamics at United, Glenn? It seems to me, anyway, that Bruno Fernandez is establishing himself as the leader that Pogba never was. Do you agree with that? Well, I do. I mean, maybe it's an element of, of where they're playing or maybe his, his role is a bit more closely defined. I mean, they don't seem to be able to work out exactly what they want to do with Pogba. Most of the time, most of the managers he's been at there, they've played in different positions. I do think uh, wouldn't entirely rule up West Brom. Funnily enough, United this season have had more trouble in those games where they've got to make the running than those games where they can sit back and um, let someone else come at them. They seem to be a team that's designed for the transition and West Brom will not be giving them that much space to play in. So it might not be that easy for them, particularly if they don't score that early. Yeah, well, I suppose case in point, Rich, was um, was Chelsea at the Hawthorns, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And even Spurs, again, just before the international break, it was a late goal from, from Harry Kane that got them over the line there. So, you know, it was a tricky place to go to. And then again, even after that, you know, you look at Istanbul on paper, United should have been that game, but came and stuck over in, in, in Istanbul. And so, um, you know, th- these kind of fixtures can become quite quite tricky. Yeah, you mentioned Harry Kane there. Manchester City are at Spurs on the restart. Harry Kane, 50th cap last night. How do you see him evolving as a player, Glenn? It's funny, it reminds me a little bit of Teddy Sheringham, who also started off more as a conventional centre-forward and gradually got deeper. I mean, Kane's a, you know, he's a lovely pass with the ball. He sees pictures around him. I mean, you can certainly see him, depending on who he's playing with. I mean, he's a wonderful player to have because he can you know, drop off like he might do with Cavalier for England, or he can play further forward. I mean, he obviously has a great partnership with Son at uh, Tottenham. You know, he's a, he's a wonderfully adaptable player who appears to play basically a nine or a ten, which gives you tremendous, um, you know, as a manager, it gives you a bit of scope. Yeah. In the Spurs context, Richard, do you think it's worth them spending the £15 million we're told it would take to make Gareth Bale's move permanent? Yeah, I can't see why not. I mean, at the end of the day, it's another quality, well, in Gareth Bale's case, world-class player at the club. And 
I guess a lot's been made of, of Spurs not really winning things and just about getting there. And you can see they're building something there. You see Kane and Son are really combining well. You've got a proven winner with, in Mourinho. Now add Bell to the mix, proven winner as well. You know, is that kind of mentality that helps teams get over the line? And his know-how will definitely have a great impact on the squad. Looks like it's having a good impact already. So, say, obviously high wages, but 15 million is, is not really a lot, is it? So to get that kind of know-how in and around the squad, I think will be really useful. I don't think other players have a massive issue with his wages, given who he is and where he's come from, as long as he performs. And although he's 31, I mean, well, he's only 31, so he's relatively young. And he's not been playing that many games in the last couple of years. I mean, he's still, you know, there's still a tremendous potential there with Bale. Yeah, well, and it's professional respect, isn't it, Glenn? How, how often have we seen that during the, down the years? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got him in your dressing room. You're going to think, well, he's the sort of player who tends to put it out in the big moments. He's got a tremendous big game record, even when he was unhappy at Real Madrid or rather when they were unhappy with him. He still turned up with goals in Champions League finals and things like that. And look what he's done with Wales. He can be an inspirational player in the right environment. I mean, and Spurs could well be that right environment. Mm. I'll put my hands up here. I um, zoned out of the England game just after half-time against Belgium and missed the uh, the great Jack Grealish flick. It was Gazaresque. Do you think, well, one, we didn't do a very good job of protecting uh, Gaza, uh, did we? And probably I'll ask you that, Glenn, because you were obviously around him at the time. No, we didn't. I mean, you always wonder what would have happened had he gone to, say, Manchester United and Ferguson would have been a bit more controlling, I guess, and also would have been out, out of London. Or was Gascoigne, because of his background and the people around him, was he always going to you know, have a difficult, complicated career? I mean, he still achieved a lot in his career but obviously not quite what we anticipate he might achieve, you know, the game with England. I mean, to an extent, it's a bit like the Kevin Peterson thing with the cricket. I mean, people say, oh, you know, why did it all go wrong with Peterson? Well, he played 100 times for England. <laughs> he, had, he, he helped them win a World Cup. Yeah, he had quite a good... I mean, Gascoigne did quite a lot with England. It's just unfortunate with injuries and various other issues in his personal life. He didn't do what we all hoped he could have done. Grealish, be interested to see how he develops. And you're right, I mean, I thought of Gascoigne watching him play last night. It's that ability to to run with the ball, to always want the ball, to have that tremendous confidence on the ball. Yeah, Belgium were sitting back a bit and gave him quite a bit of space, but he was the one player who, he does get you off your feet. It's going to be interesting how those players aren't always easy to integrate into a team, you know, where he plays, and both at England and at club level. Yeah, do you think, you know, it's obvious that there's going to be speculation about Jack Grealish, uh, Richard, in terms of, you know, transfers. Manchester City are usually a staple diet of the uh, gossip columns. Do you think there's a fit there, Grealish at City? I think so. I can't see why not. I mean, we all know that Grealish plays at a high technical level. And you look at the way Guardiola's playing this season with almost inverted wingers, and Grealish does fit into that. I mean, of course, you've got you've got Sterling on the left and you know, Mahrez on the right, of course. But, I mean, that doesn't mean uh, Grealish can't play infield as well. There are questions about Grealish's work rate a few years ago, and he seems to have almost quashed those criticisms because, he, you know, his, his work rate is, is also phenomenal as well and something that Guardiola will also look for. So... He wouldn't have cut out of place there at all. And, and in fact, I think he would actually thrive there. As you say, high technical level, among other high technical level players with, with a great manager there. It does seem like a great fit, although Villa fans won't like me saying that, selling off their players, of course. But um, yeah, I can't, can't see why. If, if, they did, if they did go in for him, he wouldn't have cut out of place there at all. No. I wonder if he is one of those players who needs to be at the centre of it and whether he might be happier staying at Villa. I mean, Villa have started the season well. They, you know, It's a big club. They've got potential. There's no reason why they can't be a sort of top six, top seven club. We agree he's right at the centre of it, a team built around him, like the, you know, sort of a, like it was with Letizia almost, those players who stay at a club. Whereas if he goes to a team where he's in and out on the, on the periphery a bit, I'm not to say he wouldn't justify holding that place at City, then he might find that more complicated. Yeah. You mentioned Letizia there, Glenn. You know, he was capable of absolutely you know, wondrous stuff. Yet our players, and I probably, you know, at the risk of repeating the point here, Richard, do we really trust players like that who play a bit off the cuff and trust in their talent and their instincts? Well, as you say, you meant there's a number of players over the years who have do play on the edge, and these are the kind of players who do get us off our seats. You, you know, we mentioned Gascoigne earlier, case in point, and there's almost a case where over the years, yes, they have been stifled to fit a system, but I think where you've got 
a special player in your team. You should do as much as you can to almost build a team around him. You mentioned Grealish and that Villa, actually giving him the armband, the team is very much built around him. And I think when you've got players like that, to get the best out of them and to really see how far they can go, you really do have to build teams around them. Of course, these days, a lot of uh, football is very systemic, which which is fair enough. You know, managers like to implement their, their styles of playing. But if you've got special talents like that, it just it's just a shame to see the teams almost not built around them, really. So hopefully we can learn from those mistakes. Mm. Do you find... I, you know, I sometimes watch academy-produced players, Glenn, and I, there's almost a robotic quality to it. You know, they'll do A, B, C, D rather than A, Z, Y, X. Yes, because that's why they've been taught. And, I mean, I think there's... um. Uh, several countries are looking at this, aren't they? And, and you also have this habit where a country thinks, "Oh, we need we need another ten, a number ten, or we need left-sided centre backs." And suddenly you've got a whole raft of them coming through at the same time, and suddenly you haven't got a right-sided centre back, or so on. Yeah, they're, they're basically they're, they're heavily coached. I mean, we can understand that they're coached from the age of eight. You know, to, to progress, you've got to you know follow the system to get picked for the following year, not get cut. There is some players, particularly coming out of South London, where a lot of playing in the cages on the states where players are sort of learning by themselves and making their own decisions and some of those players are coming through I mean as you say and also obviously uh, some of the players who come from overseas at an older age yeah particularly if they come from countries with a less developed academy system then they've still got that x factor that that little bit of difference and I guess those players if you can fit them within your system and a lot of the time it's about what they're doing when the team hasn't got the ball rather than when the team has got the ball that's that's the issue for coaches if you can fit them in the system those are teams that add a little bit of x factor yeah. Now, I'm loath to admit this, Rich, but you're a lot younger than um, Glenn and I. <laughs> Do you see, actually, a different type of young player emerging in the near future? Because, you know, as uh, as Glenn said there, you know, and, and I've seen it, watching young players developed in, in cage football, you know, Will Sahar is the obvious example, but there are many, many more. Do you see, actually, the nature of young footballers changing? I think so, and I think that's due a lot in to, to almost coaching that they're being given. They're almost given more freedom to express themselves on the pitch. And, and I know Glenn mentioned, uh, as you say, the cages of South London and, and things like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's where these players are kind of honing their, their individuality, I should say. And we're seeing these kind of players come through now. You've got Eze at, at Palace, case in point, lovely player, great skill, great technical ability. Of course, the likes of Sancho, you mentioned Zaha. And if you look through the, the, the young kind of the, the England youth sides, there, there are loads of players coming through with that high technical ability. Almost that, OK, you have to fit the system when you haven't got the ball, you know, maintain the team shape. But when you do have the ball in the final third, go and express yourself, go and show us what you can do. And that wasn't the case you know, kind of coming up through the academy system myself, it wasn't always the case where you could show your, you know, your it almost express yourself on the ball. But now we're seeing the, these talents come through and, and, and no, long may it continue because it, it will enrich the national side moving forward. Mm. And I suppose the continuity of progress from those youth ranks is important, isn't it, Glenn? And I suppose, you, you know, you mentioned Dominic Calvert-Lewin earlier on. How important is he becoming to Everton? Is he critical to them now? Well... You would say so, though it looks from the statistics that Richarlison's the one who's actually critical with them because I don't think they've won without him in the team for a year. I would say Everton are a good example of one of those teams that are sort of banging on the door that when everyone's on the pitch, they can basically compete with anybody. But as soon as you lose one of those key players, uh, James, uh, Richarlison, Calvert-Lewin, then they have a problem because the guys who are coming in aren't quite up to that standard. And, And clearly those three players that were instrumental at the start of the season and Lewin has got... You know, hugely confident at the moment. I mean, the way he put away that penalty the other day for England, I mean, he just buried it. He's got that great confidence. And when a striker's got that sort of confidence, like Bamford at the moment, you know, suddenly the game becomes easy for them. I mean, it'd be interesting. I mean, he did have a spell last year when he went without a goal for a while and Ancelotti stuck with him. And I think this Ancelotti's been very good for him. I think uh, working with Duncan Ferguson's obviously very good for him. And he's become a very big player for Everton. Let's hope they can hold on to him. Mm. But if I'm an opposing manager, Rich, I'd look at Jordan Pickford and target him. Is that fair? Because if you look at it now, and I'll put, your, I'll put you in, in Gareth Southgate's shoes, who do you pick as your goalkeeper? It was interesting, isn't it? Because Southgate came out and said that Pickford is his number one. I don't know how much of it was to kind of boost his confidence after a difficult start to the season, but I did find it a bit odd that he, he did kind of double down and say that competition there wasn't as, as strong as it was in, in other places. But... Um, 
as you you know, he hasn't had a great start to the season. And, you know, if you're kind of looking at, at I wouldn't go as far as saying weak links, but places to exploit, you would look at the goalkeeper. You would kind of, you know, pepper shots at him. You would fill the box at corners and, and, and really test him because that's where he has been found lacking. If I was going Southgate, who would I pick? Well, I guess you'd have to... It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because... Burnley haven't had a great start to the season, but Nick Pope has been consistently very, very good and he, he was great in between the sticks the other, the other day. You've got Henderson, who's not really played that much at Man United this season. But um, if I was to choose at the moment on form, I would I would say Nick Pope purely just for consistency over the past 18 months or so. Can we just broaden the conversation, Glenn, to almost season trends? I, I noticed you were tweeting earlier in the week about basically home advantage being neutralised in this sort of really unreal world that we live in at the moment. Can you expand on that a bit, please? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so far this season, we've got 20% for the season, I think. 37% home wins, 44% away wins. Over the four previous seasons, that would have been 47 to 30. So, you know, there are... It would appear on the face of it, looking at those statistics, that there is no real home advantage. In fact, there might even be an away advantage. You know, it could be argued, and some statisticians have argued the sample size isn't big enough, which is possible. I mean, it takes a few results one way or the other to change it. Another possibility is that the growing emphasis on transitional play, on counter-attacking, you know, actually supports away teams. Uh, you know, therefore, you know, you're going to get more away wins. And traditionally, if you look back over the history you know, of uh, the league, I mean, yeah, since the 80s, there has been a gradual climb in the amount of away wins. You know, since Jimmy Hill, three points a win up to a point. But it's interesting, before the Arsenal-Chelsea uh, uh, women's game, and we were talking to Emma Hayes, and she was saying the difference it makes in terms of you know, last year when they played Arsenal, though they went 4 and up very early on, Arsenal got one back. And she said, you know, the crowd were getting on them, and she was thinking, if they get another one now, you know, we could be in trouble here. And that's only a crowd of like four or 5,000. So there are times, certainly we've looked at games when if the supporters were in the ground, it would make a difference, you feel, in terms of the mentality of players and just giving that extra little bit of energy and making maybe the team that are away from home sort of panic a bit or sit a bit deeper. But yeah, let's see how the season goes on. We need a bit longer. But at the moment, it would appear that without fans, home advantage is, is largely meaningless. Mm. What about the trends across Europe, Richard? You know, we, we look at Syria. Ah, you've got Juventus who are fifth, uh, Sassuolo are second uh, in La Liga, Sociedad, Villarreal leading, although they played one more game than most of them. Do you think surprises will be sustained across the board this season? I think so. I think... It's, it's interesting because a couple of my colleagues did a piece on that over the weekend, Tom Morville, Jack Lang, just almost as to why we're seeing these kind of surprise packages this season. I mean, you look at Spain, you look at Real Madrid, although they've always almost been close to kind of calamity, then, you know, as you say, they'll win a European Cup and things look rosy again. But I mean, this season they've conceded more shots than they have done in the previous campaigns. I think averaging over 10 shots a game conceded as opposed to eight games in a previous campaign. And they just don't look as cohesive as the likes of Atletico Madrid do or, or the likes of or Real Sociedad. And again, you look at Sassuolo in, 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 in Serie A and even the likes of AC Milan, who haven't always been at the top, you know, they're, they're now competing there. And I just feel where the top sides are lacking that cohesion for a number of reasons that we mentioned, whether it's crowds, whether it's injuries. And a lot of these kind of, say, smaller teams inverted brackets almost a lot of them have had teams for a lot longer if that makes sense almost more cohesive style and them especially them those teams who like to play in a counter-attack is definitely playing into their hands and that's where you know we're seeing a kind of proof in the pudding this season I guess uh, in regards to Serie A I guess Juve are still getting used to to Pirlo he's still kind of implementing his own tactics hasn't really had a pre-season but you would still expect them to be much better than what they are yeah one of the other themes is basically inconsistency. It's pretty common fault. Glenn, if you look at England, almost Arsenal almost epitomise this at the moment. Can you put your finger on why? No. <laughs> if I could, I'd tell Mikel Arteta, obviously. No, I mean, it must be ever so frustrating for Arteta. I mean, he's rowed a couple of times, if you say, attitude, which would be worrying. He's, he's sort of complain that the attitude wasn't right and that should be the, the basic given uh, to start with but it does look like they haven't quite got I mean he's not been there that long in terms of bringing through his own players and his own signings it does look like they haven't got the right balance in attack uh, trying to work out how to get the best out of Alba you know it got a, they've got a lot of players who say have a similar sort of standard there a lot of promising young players who might 
be the big thing or, or they might not be good enough. And the only way you're going to find out is by playing them. You've got a lot of players who you're not quite sure what position it is. I mean, I guess it, one of those seasons where Arsenal are going to just try and hang in there, see if they can float in and around the top four, top six, try and get back into Europe again like they are this year. You see how they get on in Europe this year. And again, quite capable of turning it on. You can see them doing the game in the Cups. I mean, he did win the FA Cup last year, but it's a difficult one, Arsenal. So he's got a bit to go. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, again, filling the vacuum of the international break, uh, Nicolas uh, Pepe is basically been stressing how unhappy he is that he's uh, not been given, in his view, enough chances. What do you do in that situation, Rich? Do you actually sort of cut your losses and move him on or do you just try and tickle him along? I feel I feel a bit bad for Pepe in the sense that I don't feel Arsenal are, are playing to his strengths. I'm not saying that team should be built around him because I don't think he's good enough for the team to be built around him per se, but Arsenal are not playing to his strengths and, and not just him, the likes of Aubameyang, even even Willian, who, who's had a questionable start. But I mean, these are players who like playing on the transition and we know that Arsenal have been solid at the back. I mean, until the Villa game, they had the best defence in the league, but a lot of their their play is very, is very slow, slow build-up, almost like possession-based, I guess. But then that allows teams to get players behind the ball and they don't have that kind of creativity or, or individual talent to unlock or, or, or pick those holes. Whereas if they do play in a transition, as we saw in the FA Cup last season against City, Chelsea, where they were best at it, you saw how Pepe kind of ran into the space and, and, and how Aubameyang exploited you know that, that space and, and scored goals. And that's probably why we're not seeing the best of them this season. So I would like to see at least Pepe given a chance in that kind of system where they're more transition-based side and we might see the best of him. Of course, he needs to improve. I feel it's quite one-dimensional, like cutting inside, and he hasn't got the consistency of even like a Sane, let alone, uh, say, uh, Robin or cutting on that left foot and, and whipping it in. So he needs to look at his own game, of course, but he's not really been given the, the fair the fair tools, I should say, to really flourish in, in, in those conditions. Yeah, I know this is a bit of a wild comparison, but is he their Kepa? You know, basically the a danger of a record signing not being thought through. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you spent a lot of money on him. I guess with Kepa, you can see he's making huge errors. I would give Pepe the benefit of the doubt that, as I say, maybe... He, you know, the team's not playing to his strengths, but you know, if you're being bought for that amount of money, maybe show, you know, maybe like him show a bit of character, take games by the scruff of the neck, because that's what you'd expect for someone who's been bought for that amount of money. Yeah, recruitment, 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 as someone will eventually end up saying. There was a really interesting piece I thought in the Sunday Times by Johnny Northcroft, where the man behind Prozone was talking about now using AI, artificial intelligence, in recruitment. So to give an example, two examples, he says that Upper Meccano wouldn't really fit Liverpool and Sancho probably wasn't right for Manchester United. It's a fascinating area, Glenn. Do you expect more advances in that sort of area? Yes, I mean, we could do the entire podcast on this sort of thing. I mean, um, when you think about the amount of money at stake, you know, uh, I would just mention, you know, Kepa, Pepe, you know, you're spending huge sums of money on players, you know, and clubs are increasingly going to realise that, you know, we need to make sure we, these investments are correct. I mean, like any industry would of any piece of equipment that they're buying, you know, this is what we need. I can remember years ago when Stan Collinmore signed for Liverpool and then when he get and saying afterwards that when I got there, they didn't know what to do with me. They'd never really thought it through. You know, it was asked, well, what do you want from me? And he didn't really fit the way they played. It's not, it's not rocket science. It's the application of rocket science to it, I suppose. I mean, yeah, I remember David Pleat years ago saying that, yeah, some says you want a left-back. Well, what sort of left-back do you want? Do you want a left-back who can go down the line and put crossing? Do you want a left-back with right footed and can cover the centre-halves? You know, there's, there's lots of different left-backs out there. James Gearbrandt was making a similar piece in the Times on Saturday about the way positions are so much more flexible now. I was one of the first uh, reporters over here to interview Billy Bean, in fact, 10 years ago, 10 years ago last month, when... Um, Liverpool had just been bought by Henry in the uh, football uh, group. And it was, uh, yeah, I remember talking to him. He did, but he came over to talk at Stanford Bridge in one of those conferences they used to do there. And I remember talking about how you could understand how metrics could be applied to baseball because every single move started with a fixed point. Even the fielders are based in the same place. And I was arguing that well, you couldn't do it with football because everything that happens is affected by everybody else on the pitch and it's constantly moving. <clears throat> and he was saying, well, you can, we do it in basketball. And, you know, he, he was right, obviously. And with the introduction of artificial intelligence, the data can now be crunched in such huge amounts. You can now look at all these bits and pieces. And you can work out, you know, if something, if the right back does something here, how does that affect 
the centre half and the other team, and you, know, you can analyse move after move and player after player, and there's so much more analysis. And it's understandable when there's so much money at stake that you know clubs will try and find anything they can just to get that little bit of edge. And recruitment is absolutely key, you know, to to getting that right. I mean, if you haven't got the right tools, you can't do the job. Yeah, and I suppose that you know, the game almost changes sometimes without us noticing. It's it's a pretty subtle process, and when you when you look at you, you can see the clubs who have got it. They, you, you know, you look at Manchester United, for instance. Do they really have a strategy for their recruitment? It doesn't look like it, does it? <laughs> well, you've seen that over recent years. I think that's a, that's a fair argument. But I think you know what Glenn was saying was, was fascinating. And as you say, it's, it's getting those fine margins right in, in, in your favour. You say there's so much money at stake, so much money being spent. You want to make sure that you, 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 you're, getting, you're making the best investments because, as you say, that can be the difference to you know, your, your team winning the league or winning trophies or, or, or not, really. So anything you can do to, to get the edge on your opponents, use it. And as you say, there's so much technology out there being used in other sports and in other industries. And it's almost sometimes that football can be just that bit late to, to implement it. But now I feel there's no excuses with it. And if, if, there's, if the technology is there, use it and, and use it to your advantage. Yeah. Another uh, issue, basically managers usually get the sack for, for bad recruitment. And this is the time of year, the last international break before the winter, that is a traditional time for sacking. There have been none in the Premier League so far this season. Is that a sign of the times, Glenn? And is it significant that the movement has been in the Championship? Well, yes. I mean, to start with the Premier League, I mean, you could argue that the all the managers at the bottom end have got credit. They've just taken their teams up or taken them up quite, or kept them up under difficult circumstances. So they've got quite a lot of credit in the bank. And the next one up, Brighton, they played better than their results would suggest. You know, I suspect if they're crunching the numbers there and knowing Brighton, they probably are crunching numbers. They're looking at their expected goals and so on and thinking, well, if we keep playing like this, the ball will stop hitting the post and we'll start going in and we will climb the table. And after that, everyone's in the middle. So I can see also the other thing about sacking managers is it's bloody expensive. <laughs> yeah. Manchester United's recruitment is partly, and the squad they've got, is partly a reflection of getting through quite a lot of high-profile managers quite quickly. And you end up with a manager comes in, he's got a couple of people signed by Van Aal, a couple of people signed by Mourinho. You've got, yeah, then Solskjaer's had a couple more. So you've got this collection of players all designed to suit different systems. So, And then also you have to pay them off. And I guess you could say there's managers who are traditionally under pressure, Solskjaer, Moyes, Bruce. They keep pulling out results just at the right time when the pressure's building and then the spotlight moves to somebody else. Meanwhile, down the championship, they're absolutely desperate to get into the Premier League. The COVID financial squeeze has probably made things harder for a lot of clubs. So as soon as things start going wrong, it's get rid of the manager. And of course, they're, they're not on such big pay as the Premier League guys. They haven't got such big stars. It's slightly cheaper to get rid of them and try somebody else. Yeah. Wasn't presumably much of a surprise, Rich, that Derby sacked Philip Koku. You know, they were bottom after all. Enter Wayne Rooney. I know he's part of a, a bigger management team, I think four a four man management team. Or will will they look at you know someone like Eddie Howe who's ready and waiting? I think uh, all things are, are pointing to, to Wayne Rooney. I know uh, so my colleague Ryan Conway did a, a piece on the kind of debrief on, on, on kind of Koku's tenure. And it does look as though, as you say, Rooney will, will take the mantle. He's already taken on that kind of more of a leadership role. And he almost played a kind of, well, Koku was a good cop and, you know, he's like, he's smooth, he's, he's, he's articulate. Rooney is the one that can, you know, almost give the fire in the belly and he did do that on a number of occasions I think after the game when they lost 4-0 to Blackburn it, it was Rooney who, who who was the most vocal in, in the dressing room after the game so I think all, all, all roads are, are pointing to him obviously you say you've got the likes of Rossini there also with, with, with you know, great experience but um, especially if you know with the new owners coming in they probably would be looking at, at a big name and, and, and Wayne Rooney is, is that whether he's got the credentials to drag Derby out of trouble remains to be seen but um, he's already got an influence on the squad whether they'll all buy into him uh, you know only remains to be seen but we do know that you know, he's had a great career in the game at the top and hopefully he can get his methods across quickly because where Derby are at the moment just isn't good enough a team usually fighting for, for the playoffs to be down down there and as, as you mentioned Glenn with the you know, financial implications as well if they do go down it will be catastrophic for them so they probably did need to act quite quickly Yeah Do we need Glenn to look beyond caps and medals and look at the actual person rather than the player 
And if you do that with Wayne Rooney, I think he's got half a chance of being a good manager because there is a lot more to him than many people realise, isn't there? I'd agree with that. His columns have been very good in the Sunday Times, for example. Um, you know, when he went to um, America, DC United, they were impressed about his humility and the fact that you know, he'd be clicking the cones and how good he was with the other players. You know, the, the risk, of course, is if Rooney became manager, then you lose one of your best players or at least one of your best players suddenly has an awful lot more on his plate. And it is... It's a difficult one to come into. I mean, you know, your team's bottom of the league and you're trying to play as well. It's, it's quite a hard start. I mean, Rooney, I suspect, he'd obviously consider it. He has the name and the uh, financial uh, wealth to be able to pick his first job. Yeah, you know, He may think, do I want this as my first job? Because he will get other opportunities. Yeah, not everyone was in that position, but he's obviously, you know, he, he... So what I would say is that no one in the right mind would take the job until the takeover has been completed because if you get appointed by the current people and then the next guy doesn't like you, unless you've got a watertight contract and walk away a lot of money, then new new owners tend to want their own manager. Yeah. I think one of the highlights of this weekend, or I think the highlight of the weekend, has, has been that. It's been the women's football weekend. It's been a, you know, an idea promoted by uh, Kieran Tavam, who's done you know exceptional work on the behalf of the women's game now at the FA. You're not a regular, Richard, in, in, in the women's game, but what were your impressions of the weekend? Was it a success? I think so. I mean, I'd try, try and watch as, as much as I can. And I think every time you do watch, you are impressed with, with the quality. And I think, as you say, the professionalism and, and the kind of tactical now, uh, you know, I, I think is is almost as, as a given, you know, almost. You don't, you don't want to go down the line of, oh, you know, I was impressed and I wasn't expecting much because I, I was expecting much. I was expecting quite a lot, actually, especially due to the fact of, you know, the number of signings which will come over from America and the big names in the league now. You do expect, OK, what are we going to see? And and, and they, they did deliver. There were a lot, a lot of fantastic games there. Talk about whether was it a success? I think so because see, one great games, of course, and the, the way they had the format of obviously one game after another, what, what did help gave each game its exposure. It was obviously trending on Twitter, which, which also helps as well. And uh, it was just it was just great entertainment, you know, in an era where still no fans at games and stuff like that. But you know, the energy, the the the, the intensity, and the quality and the goals uh, was was brilliant to see. Yeah, I suppose the question now is, is, it's, a, it's a genuine title race in the WSL, isn't it, Glenn? Casey Stoney at Manchester United sees Saturday's draw with, with Manchester City as, as more significant than their earlier win over Arsenal. Can United win it? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think we are looking at four teams. And it was interesting, the difference in quality between the first game of the weekend, the Manchester derby and the last game of the weekend, the London derby. And the games in between was quite noticeable, the intensity and the quality of the games. Uh, the, um, although the last game was very, very tight, you know, it was, a, it was a fascinating game to watch. And yeah, United now with Heath and Press in the side and other signings they've made. And one of the differences between United this year and last year is the strength of the bench. They were able to bring on you know, quality internationals off the bench and that made a difference. I think what Casey might mean in terms of the, the results, this one being more significant, is the, the fact they were 2-0 down and came back to draw. 2-2, you know, makes it a bigger result in some respects than the Arsenal game when obviously it was just a 1-0 win. But it's wide open. I mean, any of the four could win the title. I mean, you'd say that Chelsea probably have the strongest squad as a whole, but Arsenal did very well against them yesterday and showed that the, the top four teams are quite capable of matching them. It may well be a case this year because the strength in depth for the league has improved to an extent that it won't necessarily just be decided by the results between those teams, but also the ones who don't drop points against the other teams. Mm. You were getting wet for your uh, sins at, at uh, Boreham Wood, watching that Arsenal-Chelsea game. I was really struck by the intensity of it and the quality. When you look around at a game like that, is it all the more galling that you haven't got a crowd there and people still somehow are resistant to... you know They're, they're basically... They're influenced by very outdated stereotypes about the the women's game. Well, the crowd thing's interesting because obviously, you know, the women's game, with a few exceptions, has never attracted huge figures yet. I mean, you're looking at, you know, fairly small crowds in a lot of games. We've now become used to watching products on television without crowds. Yeah, for the last six months, we've been watching football without crowds. I mean, you can pipe it in or not pipe it in, depending on your preference. In that respect... That now there's a much more equal playing field in terms of watching a women's game or a men's game on TV because basically it's a very similar product, both played without a crowd. 
And I think the um, having a big crowd has always changed people's perceptions of the matches. So in that respect, although in terms of the individual matches, it's disappointing as a collective thing, it sort of evened it up a little bit. And in terms of the other thing, you will always get a certain amount of people who are misogynist. I mean, it's hilarious the amount of people who comment underneath articles and oh, nobody cares. Well, you obviously care enough to comment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's quite a lot of things that I'm not interested in, but I don't log on to articles about them and say, I don't care about this. You know, I just don't bother reading it. So it, it is odd that sort of resistance, particularly in the UK, you don't get it in a lot of other countries to the idea that women can play football. I think, I think as the time will come, yeah, that will change. I mean, my kids both play with girls at uh, school and they don't see anything weird about it at all. Mm. There isn't, yeah. There was an interesting piece by Chelsea's uh, Magdalena Eriksson, uh, Richard, where basically she was saying, well, boys' academy matches can be declared elite, but not girls. What's going on? I, I really had a, you know, I really agreed with that viewpoint. And also, why was no one from the women's game involved in project big picture discussions? Yeah, I think what, what Eriksson said is... is I completely agree with because you're looking at, at professional clubs there. They've got professional setups. Why why are they not seen as elite as well? I, I completely agree. I did I did find that a bit strange. And there was an instance, wasn't there? I think it was with, with Bristol where a lot of a few of their players came down with COVID or one did, sorry, and the others who were in close contact had to miss the game. I think it was against Man City as well. So that's a big chunk of the squad there. Now, luckily, the fixture came at the beginning of the lockdown. So... You know, the, the academy players who came in still had that element of match fitness. But if that happened maybe a few weeks later, you know, and you're having to draft in players who are lacking that fitness, it then just becomes a bit unfair, becomes a bit farcical. So it does seem a bit unfair that you've got this professional league going on, yet there's no there's no kind of backup with that. And it's, as you say, those, these kind of inequalities just kind of, you know, it makes it a bit pointless, really. And you mentioned the, the Project Big Picture. I, again, I feel like they should have been at the table. I don't feel like... I think at the stage where women's football is at, maybe I think Glenn could probably elaborate on this, that it's at a stage where, especially with the big clubs getting the big players in, and it's almost the interest is just growing. It's just about getting there. If they were to almost break off into their own Super League, it would almost, almost diminish that. So, yes, they could have been at the table... But at least to get that point across that, OK, we're not, we're not for it. But I'm sure Glenn can probably elaborate on that a bit further. It's slightly complicated on the um, academy situation, a bit like the fuss about the FA Cup, in that although obviously you know, clubs like Chelsea and Manchester City, they've got the staffing and the equipment to put the protocols on and, and all the academies are on site. Some of the other smaller clubs, particularly in the Championship, don't, you know, they're using third-party facilities and they have separate bubbles for the academy players and the senior players. It is a little bit more complicated, but what should have been the case is the FA should have said, well, if you can meet the protocols, you can open. And some of the clubs could have done, some couldn't. Then again, of course, you've got the argument that it's unfair for some clubs against the others. But And and one of the drawbacks, I mean, like you mentioned the Bristol City case, yeah, because there's not so much money in the women's game, quite often players will live in shared accommodation. So you get one player, yeah, isolates, and you lose half a team all at once. So there are one or two specific issues with the women's game, which is largely comes down to lack of money. Yeah, and that obviously will change as more money comes into it. Yeah, I just wonder whether this all plays into the FA's crisis of leadership. I'd like to end, if I could, uh, gents, by looking at you know the succession plan, if there is one, for Greg Clark at the FA. Don't think he'll be missed, but it's going to be a vital appointment. Who, in your view, would make the best FA chairman? I'll give you first go, Richard. I mean, I would have loved to have seen Les Ferdinand in the role. Uh, he's ruled himself out, which, which is fair enough. He's got a good thing going on. At QPR is doing great, a great job there. So I, I would, I would say Paul Elliott. Now, normally with these things, I'd love to get someone from outside in, new ideas, and almost new way of thinking. But with, with Paul Elliott, I mean, kind of recently, kind of in, in his role as the kind of uh, inclusion advisory board chair, and he, I feel he's got so much more. To, to, to give and to bring. He's already done a fantastic job so far, but also just having him in that role, almost giving those new ideas, new new uh, almost a new dawn, new leadership. As I say, he's got fantastic ideas which he's already brought to the table. And the fact that he's already been within the system, he knows how to navigate, he knows how to kind of get what he would need to get on, on the table and, and over the line. So it'll be great to see him promoted into that role, but there, there are a number of great doesn't candidates. That, doesn't, but doesn't that make him... Rich, doesn't that make him an establishment man? And surely the way, you know, the, the, the state that the FA are in at the moment, they need someone more than that. They need someone with a bit more, you know, external experience and 
you know, invention. No, I, I think I think you're spot on, and so I, I would love to see. I would love to see that. And as you say, Paul, with Paul Elliott almost being in the system, he's all, people can say yes, he might be a yes man, uh, and and so on and so forth. But I just feel that in his role at the moment is almost. Although it's important, it's just, you know, he, I feel he's got so much more to give. And if he's given that promotion, that elevation to, to, to the FA chairman role, he, he can he can almost give it that kind of shot of injection and take it to a, to a new level. But as you say, it remains to be seen. Oh, yeah. You know, we're, we're veterans of, of FA politics, Glenn. Who would you like to see? Well, if you want someone to completely blow the whole thing up from the outside, then obviously Dominic Cummings is unavailable at the moment. <laughs> But I'm not oh, sure please. his culture would be quite the right thing for the FA, who have got a lot of very good people working there. It's just the, the bit at the top that's a problem. My choice would be Arsene Wenger. Knows football absolutely inside out, knows English football well, you know, follows youth football, with, you know, intelligent guy, uh, economics background, was heavily involved in the building of the stadium and the training ground at Arsenal. You know, very good talker, multilingual, well-connected in FIFA, which is an important part of being the um, FA job. Very well known around the world and outward looking, open to new ideas. I think he'd be uh, uh, an interesting choice. Certainly interesting, yeah. Arsene Wenger at the FA, that's, um, that gets the mind going a bit. You know, because I, we've got to be honest, haven't we? I, I, the archaic ignorance of, of Greg Clark summed up the faults of the FA. Now, we've been saying this for a long time, but in some ways, the governing body isn't fit to govern. It needs a vibrant and inclusive leader, probably a new streamlined structure. That's why it's a vital appointment. Now, I worked with Sue Campbell in Olympic sport. She's shrewd, strategic, extremely capable, but if they're looking for stardust, which they seem to be, I'm not quite sure she'll get over the line. As Richard said, Les Ferdinand would have been perfect. I've also thought that Herman Oosley should have had the job years ago. Two outside choices, Jason Roberts, who's doing some great work in development. And this is going to probably surprise most people, Luther Blissett. Now, I know that's really left field, but he's a measured man and a very empathetic character He's got strong views on racism and he believes in football's contribution to the community. He's pretty mild-mannered, but I don't think he suffers fools. Something to think about, I suppose. Who do you want in charge? Please let me know. And in the meantime, thanks to Glenn and Richard and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.